look outside the window, there's a woman being grabbed. They've dragged her to the bushes, and now she's being stabbed. Maybe we should call the cops and try to stop the pain. But Monopoly is so much fun, I'd hate to blow the game. And I'm sure it wouldn't interest anybody outside of a small circle of friends. That's the Phil Oaks song titled Outside of a Small Circle of Friends. It's about the murder of Catherine Kitty Genovese. She was brutally attacked and killed in the courtyard of her building in Kew Gardens, Queens, one March night 50 years ago. Her murder crystallized a new psychological concept known as the bystander effect. You see, 38 people reportedly witnessed the attack and did nothing to help. But is that really how things played out on March 13, 1964? Kevin Cook says not exactly. He's the author of a new book called Kitty Genovese, The Murder, the Bystanders, the Crime that Changed America. Good morning. I'm George Polrecki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Kevin Cook is our guest on this morning's Cityscape. Kevin, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, George. It's good to be here. I studied the Kitty Genovese case in high school psychology class, but I never realized how little I knew about this case until I read your book. How common is that reaction among people who've read this book? I think it's extremely common. I think most people encounter it in a textbook in high school or a college psych class. And she is almost always presented simply as a name, a victim. She's the person who led to Genevieve's syndrome or the bystander effect, these psychological concepts that came out of study of the, uh, of the case, which was a singular murder in March of 1964 in Queens, a particular place, a particular time. And, and I came to think that there was probably a good deal more to the story than most of us knew. What did inspire your interest in this case? I knew that the 50th anniversary of her murder was coming up, and it seemed like a remarkable uh, passage of time. And that kind of led me to think about the time that she lived in. It was an amazing time to be in New York City. The Beatles had just blown through and been on the Ed Sullivan Show. It was not long after the Kennedy assassination. The airport had just been renamed not far from where Kitty and uh, her partner, Marianne, lived. The uh, World's Fair was coming to uh, Queens, not too far up the road. Kitty and, uh, and her partner often took the train into Manhattan and spent some time in Greenwich Village, where, as anyone who's seen the new Coen Brothers movie has seen, the uh, really exciting time for uh, folk music. So just inhabiting that world, I, I thought that... Uh, she was probably more interesting than, than the picture in the paper. And it turned out to be true. She was a hardworking, charming, uh, optimistic person who had a lot of good prospects for life that were stolen from her that night. How old was she when she was murdered? She was 28. Uh, she hoped to open an Italian restaurant. She worked like crazy at the bar uh, that she both bartended and managed called uh, The Eleventh Hour in Hollis. And... Um, was saving up some money, was doing pretty well for herself, seemed relatively uh, happy and and looking forward to to the future. And then uh, what I think of as maybe the primal human nightmare happens is somebody just springs out of the dark. She was returning from work at the bar that night. Coming home from work, and that's why, you know, it was 3 a.m., she could have been lucky in a thousand ways, had some traffic lights changed at a different time, had the bar that was on the same block where she lived stayed open. It closed early that night. Not exactly sure why, but one thing that often happened on that block was bars would have fights, and this one had quite a few of them. 
people are spilling out of the, the bar in the middle of the night, shouting at each other and hollering. And that's one reason I think that people who heard her cries for help, by the time they get out of bed and see what's happening, those have passed. And they think, well, it's just another fight down on the, the sidewalk. The most popular account of the story is that 38 people witnessed her murder and 38 people didn't do anything about it. But what does your research tell? Well, my research shows that it was wildly different from that idea. And it's interesting the way that it grew up, I think, especially outside New York City, it became a crime that was pictured as almost like a West Side story. People are on fire escapes looking straight down as this crime unfolded. Everybody watching as she is stabbed to death and dies. In fact, there probably weren't more than a half dozen people who both heard and saw her cries, uh, saw what was happening to her, and knew what was going on because there were two attacks. The first was very brief. She bravely got up. There was an intervention by... Uh, fellow across the street in the apartment building, lifted his window and said, leave that girl alone. The killer ran off, and Kitty Genovese was, was strong enough to stand and walk, stumble, struggle her way around the corner. Now she's out of sight of almost anybody who could have seen and helped her. She was still visible by a couple of people uh, in an apartment building separate from the original one, and they thought, well, surely someone else has called the police by now. I did run across... Uh, a uh, fellow who uh, was 14 years old at the time and swears that his father did call the police. The police weren't necessarily a friend in those days. A lot of people who lived there said that often you would call and be invited to mind your own business. I think there was some of that in play as well. So then where did this myth of 38 unresponsive bystanders come from? That's a remarkable part of the story. I think that one thing to remember in this case is that the story wasn't international news, wasn't front page news for two weeks. And then suddenly it was on the front page of the New York Times two weeks after the crime. That's because the new city editor at the New York Times, Abraham Rosenthal, had had lunch with the police commissioner. And the police commissioner told him, 38 witnesses. This is this is a story that beats all. Who can imagine 38 witnesses? And, and Rosenthal said, 38 and Commissioner Murphy said 38, and I think it's these, the very specificity of that number that stuck in people's minds. It's a little like the same principle that, that Senator Joseph McCarthy had when he waves some blank pages in the air and says, I know of 57 communists in the State Department. We tend to seize on that number and think, well, he must know what he's talking about if he's not saying 56 or 58. If they're not saying 37, which was actually the original headline in that Times story, the story itself said 38, headline said 37, the number is relatively arbitrary. This murder took place in Kew Gardens, Queens. What type of neighborhood was Kew Gardens at the time? Well, it was a pleasant neighborhood. It wasn't upscale. Uh, there were a lot of immigrants uh, living there. There were a lot of people who worked at the airport because it was a very short commute to what was just named JFK. It was a place where people left their doors open at night, where girls sold Girl Scout cookies after dark, door to door, very little crime, and certainly very little serious crime. Another part of the Kitty Genovese story, I think, that resonated uh, was that this crime happened at a time when people were really worrying about urban life. Is it changing us? There are many more people living in big cities. Their parents may not have lived in the big cities and worried about what was going on there. Does it atomize us? Does it cut us off from other people? This story fit that so well that after it became front page news, newspapers started to have an apathy beat. We're looking for the next apathy story. And one thing I really came to believe was that apathy didn't kill Kitty Genovese. 
It was a monster uh, who uh, was looking for somebody to kill that night, and he did that. I'm not sure it would have been different had it been in another neighborhood. What did you uncover about the killer? Uh, he was a very strange character, he, but he was a family man, as they said in those days. He was married. He uh, had a couple of children. He lived in South Ozone Park, not far from the airport, worked in, in early computers, a company called Raygram. And in those days, that was a pretty steady job. He made decent money. His wife worked nights, which allowed him to prowl at nights. She uh, was a nurse, worked in a hospital. Their combined salaries got him a couple of cars. They seemed like the American dream at work, except that increasingly he seemed preyed on the idea of going out at night and preying on other people, especially women. He started with burglaries. It escalated to rapes and escalated from there to murder. He was um, caught relatively easily and then in another bizarre chapter to this story escaped from prison uh, and went on a rampage in Buffalo. Yeah, that was a pretty uh, horrific scene that unfolded after he escaped from it prison. It truly was, and, and I happen not to be a person who who thinks that the capital, uh, that capital punishment should be legal. I don't think the state should be able to kill its citizens. There is an interesting subtext in which a lot of people involved in that trial from the legal aspect think that the uh, the judge, Judge J. Irwin Shapiro, was a death penalty uh, opponent, but there was such rage in the community that uh, it was a quite a popular verdict when the, the uh, death penalty, the death verdict came in. He may have put some uh, ver- reversible error into uh, his judgment. It is reversed on appeal, not entirely, but uh, the sentence has uh, changed from death to life in prison. Had Winston Mosley wound up in Old Sparky, as they call the electric chair at the time. Uh, of course, he wouldn't have been around to escape and terrorize, rape a couple of uh, people in uh, Buffalo in 1968. So what happened to him after he escaped from prison and was recaptured? Uh, he's back in prison and has been ever since. He is still in prison at the age of 79 in uh, Danamora. It's, uh, that's its colloquial name. It's Clinton Correctional Facility way up in the northernmost part of uh, New York. Every uh, couple of years he has a parole hearing and his parole is denied. How old was Winston when he committed this murder? The same age as Kitty, oddly enough, um, and they were both in their late 20s and may even have encountered each other. I have no idea whether, but he was a guy who, on his way home from work, would occasionally stop in at a bar and nurse a beer for a long time. It's not at all impossible that he was at the end of the bar uh, when she was tending bar at some point. Now, his attack was really methodical because, as you mentioned, he stabbed her. He walked away. He had a stocking over his head initially, but then he changed, pulled off the stocking and put a hat on and went back and continued the attack. Between his murderous attacks, he went and backed up his car so that it was no longer visible to anyone turning on a light in the windows. He changed, as you say, from a stocking cap to a jaunty fedora with a feather in the brim and then went looking for her. Now, by by now, Kitty has has bravely gotten herself around a corner. She's not able to make it to her own door that leads up the stairs to her apartment. She falls into another vestibule uh, at the foot of the stairs of a neighbor whom she knew and must surely have thought she was safe, at least for the moment, not able to get up. She was not mortally wounded. The killer comes back. He's looking for her. He later said he wanted to finish the job that he had set out to do. He tried a few doors. They're locked. Finally found her in in a moment of unimaginable horror for her. This man is is back. And this is when uh, he actually uh, stabs her fatally uh, while uh, someone at the top of the stairs could easily have called the police and didn't. 
What do you make of that? That person actually opened the door, saw her there. She actually spoke to that person. Yes, there's a real likelihood that she said his name. There is practically no doubt that the killer and the man at the top of the stairs, a local dog groomer, uh, looked one another in the eye before he went back inside um, as Kitty's uh, partner, Marianne Solanco, who, to whom I'm very grateful for her help, she knew him you know, quite well. I mean, they were, they were acquaintances. Uh, they sometimes had a drink together. And later, when she found out, believed that this is the last person that you would want at the top of the stairs if someone were attacking you. He was a timid, very frightened character. Later, he said the phrase to the police that became emblematic of this entire case, I didn't want to get involved. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. March 13th marks the 50th anniversary of the murder of Kitty Genovese. Kitty is known to history as an urban martyr who was killed in plain sight of 38 witnesses who didn't want to get involved. But a new book questions that popular account of the murder. We're joined this morning by Kevin Cook, the author of Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America. How quickly after this incident did the Kitty Genovese case start to be discussed by psychologists? It was quite quick. In fact, I I spoke to some neighbors who said after the Times story uh, came out on the front page two weeks after the crime, suddenly the neighborhood, this little neighborhood with a very small population, is swarming with reporters and psychologists. Some psychologists want to know what dark thing in, in the character of Kew Gardens, Queens, enabled uh, these people to stand there so callously and do nothing. Pretty soon, the neighbors started to realize they weren't getting asked very friendly questions. They start to shut their doors. Um, but over time, there were some fascinating studies. Not only did the 911 emergency telephone system arise more or less directly from this case, but a great deal of study of the behavior of crowds, the bystander effect that, uh, that you know suggests correctly that if you're being attacked by someone, you're a lot more likely to get help if there are only two or three witnesses than if there are 20. Because if there are 20, they tend to think, oh, somebody bigger, stronger, more courageous will will intervene instead. And that is absolutely true. It doesn't apply all that particularly, although it does have you know some application to uh, Kitty's plight. What effect did this murder have on the neighborhood? Did the neighbors stay after all of this? Some did, but many fled and no longer wanted to be asked questions about, oh, is this the murder scene? Are you one of the people who didn't help this poor girl? We talk a lot about the bystanders and the witnesses, whether it was 38 or many fewer. I mean, there were there were certainly dozens who heard something. Uh, my belief is that many of them heard something, and by the time they they wake up, know what's going on. There's nothing further to see. But when we talk about witnesses and bystanders, there were eyewitnesses, there were ear witnesses, um, there were a few who were both. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the people who heard something that night then found out what had happened and wished, oh my goodness, you know, I wish I'd been alert. I wish I'd gone outside to see what was going on. Uh, there, there's a wonderful man named Murray Berger who lives nearby who found himself a couple of weeks after this infamous crime is in the newspapers, he would hear twigs break outside and run outside to see if some terrible crime is happening. It does affect people, and it, and it affects their psychology, and it affects the psychology of a place as well. And I think Kew Gardens has been known ever since as the site of this horrible murder where these 
cold-hearted people looked out the window and did nothing. How much time did you spend in the neighborhood? Did you walk in Kitty's footsteps oh, going yes, to see yes. where all this uh, took yeah, place? It's, it's haunting. It's more so the first time. I mean, I think like everybody who goes to the, uh, the coffee shop where uh, Kitty and uh, uh, Marianne walked past every day, still a coffee shop, different name today. The corner pharmacy is now a, a day spa. But for the most part, it's quite like it was in those days. The Long Island Railroad Station looks just the same. The neighborhood is relatively unchanged, and one can definitely walk in Kitty's steps, imagine what it must have been like, how close she was to her own home, and uh, really how far from uh, a real chance when a couple of people who could have helped her didn't. What, a, what an awful night that was uh, for a person to go through. You mentioned that Kitty's partner, Marianne, was instrumental in helping you to put this book together. How much time did you spend talking with her? Not a great deal. She's a very private person. We spent hours on the phone. I went up and and sat over coffee with her. They're still troubling, difficult memories for her. She spoke to NPR um, about 10 years ago, which was the first time that she'd really spoken about the case at all. She opened up much more to me, and her, her memories are specific and uh, and still very vital to her so more than a function of time it was a function of just just having her be willing to talk for the first time about uh the first time at length really about these memories that are still difficult for her um so i, I was she home that night was she sleeping did she, she was sleeping yeah. yes yes she was upstairs and in a in a place where it would have been harder to hear some windows were much closer than others and she felt horribly guilty she's one of the people who felt what if i had awakened i would have i could have gone and, and done something but uh, she slept right through and what more can you tell me about Kitty Genovese? She was a likable person. She she liked to, to bet on the ponies occasionally. She uh, was actually arrested, right? She Illegal was gambling. arrested for a very minor and, and practically entrapped by these detectives who staked out a bar and made sure that they were coordinating their conversations. Oh, yes, we've got them. It's one of the things that you're supposed to do, basically, if you're... And she's a popular bartender. She's somebody who managed the place and would give small loans to the barflies. And you, this is the kind of thing that one is supposed to do. Uh, it's a neighborhood place. She would take a bet. I want, you know, I want, I want number seven in the, in the next race uh, at Aqueduct. They would take it down. They would call it in. And the police got her. And they actually thought... Or, or accused her of being involved with the Genovese crime family, which she was not. This is another misconception about this case. And she got a little sassy with them and said, oh, yes, I'm, I'm a racketeer, and I'm taking in thousands of dollars every day. They just marched her down to the uh, police station, took a mugshot of her, which became the iconic, the famous picture uh, that Kitty uh, Genovese had that night that uh, is the one we usually see in the newspaper. And that's the one on the cover of your book? It is the one on the cover, and... Uh, Another aspect of the case, and I think there's, there's been a lot of academic study, as you refer to, the, the foremost academic expert is a Fordham professor named uh, Harold Takushian. We are not done studying this case. I think it's... What more is there to learn? I think I would like to know how famous this case would have become if 10, 15 other things had gone differently. Had, had Rosenthal played it a little bit smaller maybe not so definitive about the 38, would the story had stuck? Had Kitty Genovese not been as attractive as she as she was, would people have looked at that picture and thought, uh, oh, what a, what a tragedy? I think that that 
did make a difference. Had she been black, does it make a difference? He had had a black victim before, the same killer, and uh, it certainly didn't become international news. What about her sexuality in the 1960s when homosexuality was not as accepted? That's right. Being a lesbian was was hushed up by both sides in the trial. The defense didn't want people to, to know. They certainly didn't want to, uh, uh, Marianne to let on that she was anything more than uh, her roommate because that would potentially cause a jury to think less of the victim. You know, this is a time when Kitty and her partner would go into the very vivid underground gay scene in Greenwich Village. It was still illegal to serve an alcoholic beverage to a gay person throughout America, except for one little part of Chicago at the time, uh, because that would constitute, under the laws of New York City, a quote-unquote disorderly house. Things have changed a great deal. Some things have uh, changed for the better. And, you know, ironically, I think there have been lives saved by the 911 system, certainly, that might not have been saved had it not uh, been put in place as quickly as it was. Yeah, hard to believe that 911 didn't exist before 1964. That's true. You would call and, and get a dispatcher. You would call the, you'd get the desk sergeant, usually. Take your yellow pages, and it's got the local police number. You could call a different police number, and they'd try to figure out where you were. Importantly, though, the first thing the police are going to ask you is, what is your name? And anonymity is really important because people were very concerned about getting involved. And and I do think that it's um, easy for those of us who think about this case and wonder what me, we might have done had we been there. You know, I certainly tend to think, gosh, you would pick up the phone and call the police and try to get some help. I don't know how many of us would have charged a man with a knife had we had a chance. And I'm glad that we don't have to uh, ask ourselves that question every day. Now, as far as Winston Mosley is concerned, did the defense not try to move forward with an insanity plea? Uh, There was discussion of it. He didn't really want to cooperate with that. He was an intelligent man, uh, had an IQ measured at 132 in one test. He uh, didn't really want to go along with being portrayed as insane. That was his best chance. And that there was testimony uh, to that effect, but it was excluded in the penalty phase of the trial because uh, the judge didn't think that was germane to the to the verdict. What other criminal justice reforms resulted from this case? Because there were others. There are uh, the right to stand up and, and speak to one's accuser. The victim's rights was an important outgrowth. Again, not direct in, in this case, but this case was an important part of uh, the victim's rights movement. And I think there is also... Uh, the Good Samaritan laws that um, that uh, Jerry Seinfeld and company fell afoul of in their last episode have changed in important ways. If you're a doctor, for instance, at one point, it's very sketchy as to whether you make the decision to try to, if you're driving past someone who's injured, to intervene. And the laws that have come about fairly directly as a result of the Kitty Genovese case have made it much simpler for people to be able to intervene without worrying about being sued later. Besides talking with Marianne, who else did you talk with connected, directly connected to this case? There, well, there was a, one fascinating talk was with uh, Robert Sparrow, who was the son of the defense attorney. The defense attorney, Sidney Sparrow, isn't with us uh, any longer. But talking about defending this man was a fascinating part of the trial. I spoke to the current assistant district attorney in the Queens, whose one of his responsibilities is keeping the killer, Winston Mosley, in prison, and a wonderful person named Janine Abel, who works out there as well, who was wonderfully helpful uh, to me in, in putting together the important parts of this aspect. I found a, not only the neighbors, the burgers and, and uh, others, but 
a fellow named Angelo Lanzone, who was a friend of uh, Kitty's and Marianne's, actually got kicked out of a restaurant with them one time. Uh, so these are the stories that remind you just what a daily existence they live, just like anyone does before a crime changes everything forever. How well do you feel like you know Kitty? I would like to know her much better. I mean, I think it was a matter of putting a puzzle together and trying to get an inkling of what she was like. I think she was a likable person, and I was delighted to get a little of her voice. That's one thing that we have not had ever uh, since the the crime itself, memories of, of her crying out and what she said, oh, God, I've been stabbed. And I did track down some transcripts from that very minor gambling offense uh, when she went into what was called magistrate's court or gambler's court and just gave a little rundown of uh, what she did uh, every day at the bar. And yes, she liked the ponies. Every once in a while, she would do somebody a favor and book a bed for them and uh, didn't really feel that it was a fair thing to be uh, hauled into court over such a thing. And it's an appealing voice. And uh, that was very important to me. She was not from Queens originally. She was from Brooklyn. She was from Brooklyn, and uh, her family, uh, her mother witnessed a murder in Brooklyn. The family moved to uh, safety of uh, suburbia in Connecticut, and Kitty, who grew up in uh, Brooklyn, went to Prospect Heights High School and graduated in 1953, uh, was a person who really loved the city and couldn't even picture herself in suburbia. She wanted to stay. She said she'd work. She said she'd stay in touch. She did both. Uh, and uh, lived uh, the life that I think she chose, and that's something to celebrate. And I want to remember that if there were any justice, she would have a chance to turn 79 years old this year in Mm -hmm. 2014. Has her family talked much about the case? Not very much. They uh, had a very horrible time, as one can imagine, at the time. They have attended some of the parole hearings. They have wanted very much for Winston Mosley to remain in prison while he was writing op-ed stories in the... uh, New York Times, for instance, claiming to to have helped society by uh, increasing the awareness uh, that we need to come to each other's aid, sort of obscenities like that. And uh, Kitty's brother, Bill, William, I think he's working on a documentary uh, that may come out at some future Hmm, time. About his sister's case. Uh, Largely, or I'm not sure how much of of it is about his experience and how much is about uh, her life, so I can't speak to that. What surprised you most in all of this? I think the complexity of it, it just gets deeper and deeper the longer you look. It it starts out as really, I think I'm like an awful lot of people who, who knew the picture, knew the name, knew that was the young woman who was killed while nobody came to help her. Then you start your research and, and start tracking down the time story, which is more detailed than that. There were other stories more detailed than that. The fascination of reading the newspapers in 1964, what movies they were going to, and and the somewhat um, quote-unquote bohemian life that Kitty and uh, her partner Marianne lived, which is, uh, to me, it's a compliment. It was used as code at the time or um, uh, what some people would find an objectionable uh, way of life. And uh, I think the more you work on a story like this, the more you come to inhabit that time and place. And I certainly can't go past the Kew Gardens train station on the uh, LIRR anymore without thinking very hard about Kitty Genovese. This was a 30-some-odd-minute crime, right? Yes, and part of it was her brief respite. 
when surely she thought she was safe and uh, he was going around looking for her. It goes on, uh, it must have seemed interminable to her. And, you know, there, there's time for a call to be made to the police and not to be, um, no car is dispatched. There's time for uh, the gentleman at the top of the stairs to call his friends and say, what should I do? What should I do? Finally, to crawl across the rooftop and say, what should I do? All of this is happening. And had any aid come to her any sooner, she might well have been saved. She didn't die of, uh, from losing blood. She died because her lungs were punctured. And it took time. She was trying uh, to get her breath for uh, the time that nothing was happening and and had something happened even 10 minutes sooner, say, maybe even less than that, her life might have been saved. Where is Kitty Genovese buried? In Connecticut, uh, not far from where her parents live. Have you visited her grave? I have not. I have intended to. That's been one of the things that I wanted to do after the book came out, and uh, that's that's one of those closure things. I didn't I didn't feel it was right to go yet. Do you know from Marianne, her partner, how she would have felt about this book and having this story told in such great detail? I don't know. I mean, I hope that she would have felt that presenting her to a public that knows her only as a victim. My attempt, whether it's succeeded or not, has been to present her as a person, as a, as a real life story that uh, should have lasted a lot longer than it did. And I hope certainly that she would have thought that at least that part of it was a good idea 50 years later hard to believe right it certainly is kevin cook is the author of kitty genovese the murder the bystanders the crime that changed america it's out this monday by ww norton and company and that's it for this week's cityscape past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org cityscape you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter for show updates and new york city tidbits we're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Bodarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.